I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old over-the-hill milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants in 50 states, five foreign countries, with an annual revenue of in the neighborhood of $700 million? One word, persistence. Nothing in this world can take the place of good old persistence. Talent won't. Nothing's more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius won't. Unrecognized genius is practically a cliche. Education won't. Why, the world is full of educated fools. Persistence and determination alone are all powerful. Welcome back. David Penn here. Thank you for coming back. Great to see you. Uh, the Professor Penn Podcast. Always thank you to Free People Radio. This channel. Check it out. Lots of content coming with a movement and a message. Something that is to bring us together as a community. Target.com. We all have to buy tires when you go to Target.com. You're supporting everything we're doing together. It's called building our own political economy, supporting each other. We have to do it across the board. We have to find the businesses and the people that are supporting human freedom and human well-being and support them. We vote with our money every day. Precinctstrategy.com, if you want your vote to count in the party or parties as the case may be a tutorial about how to get into the game of politics. We started out uh, with that great movie, The Founder, again, uh, Michael Keaton playing. Oh, is that Michael Keaton? I don't know who is that. I don't know if that's Michael Keaton. Look that up. I think I could be wrong. And he did such a great job. I don't want to get this wrong. So, um, Playing Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. Michael Keaton. All right. That was a that was a save. That was like just barely caught that one. Okay. Uh, in politics, and we're going to go through this a little bit today. There's always a you know some secret societies. Oh, now we find out that these secret societies, they're popping up everywhere, and they're always about politics. You know, that's where we go to get things done. When what we believe is not necessarily to be accepted. You know, being ahead of the curve. So this, this, this concept of uh, persistence, this is a secret society concept. It's a cultural concept. It's the concept of endurance, of being enduring. So within the political context, we just need to endure we have been, this is another secret society idea, we've been attacked, and we just need survive. We don't have to be in this huge conflict. We just need to redirect, rethink, rebrand, and come up with a message that all the people are going to resonate with. And it's persistence. 
you know, he said, what, you know, he, he was older, he was washed up, he was beat up, and he kept doing it and doing it and doing it, and he was selling hamburgers everywhere. So another conversation about the hamburgers. But his business persistence was, it's what we have to do, each one of us in our own lives, in our own way. Business is but one of the ways a person can persist. It could be in athletics. It could be in music. It could be in politics. It could be in all of the above. We must persist. So there's a real message there uh, about what really just getting in the game, staying in the game every day, having a set of values and principles, being rebranded, having a product we want to sell, knowing it's the right product, because we're telling the truth, right? It's about the truth. And you just persist, and then, you know, magic happens around that sometimes. More often than we want to believe. So that's what we're working on. Tanner, can you hit the timer? We're just going to talk a little bit about current events when I say we've been attacked. You know, what is terrorism? What is terrorism? You know, we're so terrorized, we don't even ask the question anymore. We live with an ongoing sense that our lives are no longer safe in public spaces. Some of us like that, some of us don't, but it is a growing sense of dread, and it is, you know, largely driven by the media we consume. And, uh, you know, I was recently... uh, by two really critical people in my life, people I really care about, both of them said, you know, there's no crisis. At the same time, and their, their perspectives are completely different. And uh, there's something to be said for that. You know, we can get caught up in images and reports that, you know, represent such a small percentage of the population and the likelihood of us getting involved, me and you getting involved in it is so small, why are we being terrorized? But yet, the media is part of that process, and if we disengage from the media, we don't know what's going on. So we do get terrorized just by having to be involved with it, to know what's going on. We had these two big events uh, down in Texas over the weekend, and this, this Texas thing is very interesting. You know, what we're really talking about in branding, the branding of these parties. Both of them, what drove the branding, what's driving the branding, the brand identification, the brand perception, it's all about immigration. And then that's all about race and and Darwinism. And we want to track back and know how this came because it's in both parties. I mean, neither party is, you know, free of the concepts such as manifest destiny that, you know, was a big part of this country's history. A little bit more on the Democrat side, but very certainly was on the Republican side too. And when the country was forming, there was a lot more variability of thinking. There was, only newspapers was media. So there was a lot more range of thought. And, you know, as I read it, a lot more turnovers of the parties you know, the perceptions were changing over time. Groups formed, groups came together, came apart. So this concept of immigration, uh, 
you know, has been part of uh, terrorism, Ku Klux Klan, terrorist organization, right, Antifa. I mean, there's all these different groups, groups on both sides of the equation, groups we might not even remember anymore uh, that we want to talk about. To understand how these brands developed and how we can alter our brand and understand some of this terrorism in a broader context. In a broader context. Redo the messaging so that we can move past and move to that 70% of the population agreeing about what we're going to do here. But these terrorist events, and I'm going to say they're terror, you know, they're being sold as whatever. We're not going to know. This is the part that another friend of mine said. We're never going to know the truth because the, the truth is going to pile on about this shooting at that mall in North Dallas. And it's going to pile on about that uh, SUV running those people or that vehicle running those people over down in, I think it was Brownsville. And these happened one day apart. And they were really mass casualty events. Uh, I don't know how much press they're really getting. I mean, I, I, I look every day. There doesn't seem to be a lot of update. Um, a lot of allegations on every side. Don't know what happened. But I, I could come up with a, a guess because, you know, with the Title 42 coming uh, to its end next week, uh, that's such a big change at the border, potentially, in terms of how these people are brought into the country. And they are being brought in. I mean, we just have to be very frank about it, uh, understand it. Maybe there's a new message in here we can develop. <clears throat> are these people substantially different than, uh, let's see here. I mean, this is an amazing number. I found it this morning. I woke up still thinking about this. Between 1820, in 1957, an approximately 1820 and 1957, an approximately 41 million migrants came to the United States, and of those, 34 million came from Europe. The most commonly documented countries of origin during this time were Germany, 6.6 million, Italy, 4.9 million, Ireland. 4.6 million, Great Britain, 4.5 million, and Russia, 3.4 million. So this is, a, this, is, this is a rehash of an old issue with its own unique twists. And uh, the terror attacks, I'm going to call them terror attacks. Whatever, whoever, and why, whatever the reasons were here. It's terrorizing. I mean, it's just terrorizing. So Noam Chomsky, we've talked about him before, he's a great liberal thinker. On the question of terrorism, he said everybody's worried about stopping terrorism. Well, there's really an easy way to stop. Stop participating in it. That's a very spiritual comment if you think about it, but there's a lot of truth to it. If you want to start to diminish terrorism, stop participating in it. 
It's a very broad political thought that as we're developing this 70% message, it's a pretty good message. That's a pretty good message. I like that message. What terroristic things are we involved in, we the people, where we're terrorizing people? That we could give it up. We don't need to do that. Why are we terrorizing? Well, first question is, are we, we the people, terrorizing anybody? And let's go back to, yes, you know, the last podcast. I think uh, President Biden has proposed a $1.1 trillion military budget for this next fiscal year. They're arguing about it. And I think it was $2.1 trillion of every country in the world military spending, and this country's up for $1.1 trillion. Okay, you think that scares some people? Think it keeps them up at night? Probably it might. Something to think about. Because this kind of terrorism... If this were to break out, if political violence was really to fill our cities, and I mean really, and if you look at the, the history of this kind of a change, because this is a very big change we're going through, it's not the first time it's been seen. It's generally accompanied by a famine and a lot of violence. And we have threats of, of famines. So we're in a new religion. We've talked about this. It has a goal, and its goal is out there for you to discover. I'm not even going to say it because you have to find it for yourself. That's just the way it is. You're not going to believe me. So why should I say it? You have to come to it on your own. And there's millions of us that are doing that now, right? So this terrorism, if it really breaks out, and it is breaking out, and we are being terrorized, and it, you know, it's, it's a self-generating thing also. What is that going to mean in our society to our Second Amendment right uh, for how the American people are going to see this violence? And to what extent are they going to be willing to go to eliminate it? Because it's when the people cry out that the leaders are going to have the justification. So how we talk about this, uh, how, we, how we work our way through it as the American people, this is new territory. We need to be very, very smart about this. And we can do it because we're now thinking out of the box together. That's why I want us to be in a community so that we can get everybody's input. Because everybody's a specialist in something if they want to be. And it's all, high, you know, all hands on deck, right? So we have these terror attacks. And uh, we'll just have to see where we're going to go with this. But to see that kind of violence uh, back-to-back Saturday, Sunday, and to think about the size of the drug business, the illegal drug business in this country, and the size of the human trafficking business in this country, and the size of the migrant business, all of these businesses controlled by groups of people that are in secret societies, by the way. We don't know anything about them. We're told they're criminals. Actually, they're very organized. They've, they've got a very good business as far as making money goes. 
I don't like their business model, but it is a very good business. If making money is your own criteria, your only criteria, if that's if you're a Darwinist and that's how you judge success, these people are at the top of the heap. What is the impact of that incredible business? I mean, the scope and size of this business, the money involved, what is its impact in our country? You know, we, we, uh, we Americans tend to think that uh, we love ourselves too much. Somebody says that to me sometimes. You know, we love ourselves too much. You know, in other countries, they know the real situation. They maybe can't do anything about it, but they know what's going on. Here, we don't really even know the real situation. So let's see where we go with this, this kind of intense violence. And um, we've got some smart hombres we're dealing with here. They're interested in winning. They don't care if they're socialists or communists or liberals or Nazis. Doesn't matter to them. Remember, they have a goal. They have a goal. And you, I've said it before, please go look for it yourself because you have to find it for yourself now. We all have to find it for ourselves. I mean, I can say it over and over. But when I, when I dig around and look around and do my own research, the feeling of satisfaction I have in discovering, you know, information or knowledge it's just great. I, I really want you to try it. Please try it. You know, it's an, and it's very active, too. Remember, it's not passive. It's a very active, taking a very active role. It's a good exercise for the will from the perspective of a secret society. Title 42 is ending soon. That's a COVID leftover, right? Because they had a little loophole there to stop people at the border and send them back. That's coming to an end. I think this come this week, the 11th of May. So this is brought back. Texas is back into the game. Texas is in the hunt. Tanner, can you play this, Governor Abbott? In three days, a policy that allows the U.S. to turn away most migrants at the border will end. KBS Matt Fernandez reports Governor Greg Abbott says Texas is launching a new task force to help handle a possible surge of people at the border. Today we are deploying a new National Guard unit. It's called the Texas Tactical Border Force. That's the announcement Governor Greg Abbott made in Austin ahead of the end of Title 42. Governor Abbott says Texas is preparing for a potential surge of migrants at the border. They will be deployed to hot spots along the border to intercept, to repel, and to turn back migrants who are trying to enter Texas illegally. Title 42 was put into place when the pandemic hit in 2020. Floyd, of course, because of COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and uh, used as an immigration measure by the Trump administration, it has stayed in place since. Tony Payan is the director of the Center for U.S. and Mexico at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston says the governor does have the authority to send troops to the border. The National Guard serves at the uh, beck and call of the governor of Texas. Uh, he can deploy them if there is an emergency, if there is an, uh, you know, some sort of uh, uh, public health uh, issue or 
or, or specifically some sort of uh, natural disaster and things like that. Officials say there are many cases where migrants are trying to seek asylum to escape violence from their country. Bayan says there could be a temporary surge, but he does not believe the deployment by Governor Abbott will have a big impact along the border. The governor has sent National Guardsmen to the border in the past. It'd be better for Texas to coordinate well with the federal government and uh, implement a full strategy to process migrants, invest the resources there, and then some send those back that do not qualify to their home countries and allow those that do into the country. Meanwhile, U.S. officials have been preparing for the end of Title 42 for over a year. Border cities, including El Paso, are ready to open shelters for migrants seeking asylum if needed. In Austin, Matt Fernandez, KVU News. That's Texas television. It's very, very uh, progressive. And, you know, it's media. You had a, I don't even, I'm not even going to look this guy up because I know what I'm going to find. I know that sounds very judgmental, and I've judged enough. I mean, I've been around this long enough that I can judge it. This guy's working at a university. He was super careful about what he said. But what he really said was that deployment's a show-and-tell story. And it'd be good if Texas got with the federal program and processed these migrants when they come in. He's an immigration activist. It's kind of a threat, actually, if you listen to it carefully. Kind of a threat. So this isn't going to matter. Who knows whose payroll he's on? I don't want to know. Okay? Let me say this again. I don't want to know whose payroll he's on. That's for law enforcement to deal with, okay? And... I don't know what's going to happen down there. I have friends in Texas, close friends, that are strong supporters of what's going on down there. And let's see how it turns out. But it would seem to me, this is just, I don't understand the politics involved at, in Texas around this issue. I don't understand it. I'd like to. I think maybe I'm going to start to look into it. I don't understand it. I mean, these things are, these are very big, this is a very powerful Republican Party in Texas. They're in charge of that state. And I don't understand all the different forces and, and uh, constituencies that why isn't the border not just closed is the question I'd ask myself. I don't know why. So I'm, I have an open mind, and I try to be very um, respectful when I don't understand things. And I think that's important for all of us to do. If we have critical thinking, you know, we have to get information. So I, I'm going to look into it just because I'm interested. What is going on down there vis-a-vis -vis this issue? Here we have a, a leftist immigration professor saying that the deployment is not going to change things at the border. It's just not going to change things at the border. And, you know, they're going to process these migrants. And he didn't call them illegal immigrants. He called them migrants. That's kind of a tell, right? So, I, you know, let's watch and see what happens. But, you know, the body has skin, and it separates self from not self. The body has an immune system to repel uh, foreign bodies. If you lose your skin or you lose your immune system, you die. The skin of the nation is its border. Now, it's not that we're going to just die and go away. We're going to be an old concept is going to die. And a new concept is going to replace it. And I don't mean that like replacement migration. I'm not talking about just stop. I mean, we're talking about ideology at the level of culture. 
And we can't get around about it, but we also have to be very sophisticated about how we think about immigration. And uh, this goes into the, the whole idea of branding. Again, again, if we're racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, homophobic and xenophobic, where are the people going to go that want to have a country? We're not giving them a place to go. Got to think out of the box. Let's play McDonald's selling the American dream on branding. I'm going to give you three words. I want you to take those three words home with you tonight. McDonald's is family. Isn't that great? You know what I say when I say that? Family. We're one big family. Barbie. You got mouths to feed. That's a family. I'm looking for a few good men and women who aren't afraid of hard work, aren't afraid to roll up their sleeves. Coach I know, but I'm looking for scrap hustler guys who are willing to roll up their sleeves. People with a little drive. They got a little fire in the belly. Got a little chutzpah. I stand right here before you today, and I'm going to offer you something as precious as gold. You know what that is? Anybody. Anybody. Opportunity. It's opportunity. Opportunity. Opportunity to advance. To move forward. To move up. To advance. To succeed. To win, to step up. The sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Grab the brass ring. Give yourself a shot at the American dream. Put your arms around the American dream. Opportunity. Because I'll tell you something. At McDonald's, just like this great nation of ours. Some of that elbow grease. I guarantee you. If you've got the guts, you've got the gumption, you've got the desire, I guarantee you, you can succeed. There's gold to be had at the end of those golden arches. Golden arches. Golden arches. Now, who's with me? Who wants to jump on that ladder to success? Become part of the McDonald's spoke. Now, who's with me? I have to say I enjoy that. Uh, so that's Ray Kroc working on working through different uh, branding for McDonald's. He kept working. You know, he was looking for the right uh, hook to get those people to give him his money. He was looking for franchisees. This is at the beginning of the McDonald's era. And if you notice where he was going, he was going to secret societies. He was going to the, the lodge and the temple. The Temple and the Lodge. Interesting, interesting in the movie that those two were his. That was his target market. He was looking for the folks that were good with the money. The Temple and the Lodge. The Lodge and the Temple. I wonder if they know they had that much in common with each other. I'm sure it'd freak them both out. Be good for a laugh. I'm laughing inside right now and hope you're laughing too. That's a movie with a sense of humor. That's a sense of humor. But you know, I think they say uh, truth is stranger than fiction. That's the truth. That's what he did. And I have a personal anecdote about this that pops into my mind. Uh, you know, there are certain kinds of uh, synagogues. Uh, I wouldn't call them fraternal orders, but they're definitely not anchored in the, uh, in the Sinai desert. They had both feet firmly in the American dream. And... Uh, I'm going back into the 50s now, where, where this thing comes from, where they're talking about selling franchise franchises. And that, you know, there was a, a, a schism in the, in the faith where you had a group that wanted to keep the old ways and a group that said, nah, uh-uh, we're in America now. 
So they they kept the cultural pieces, but uh, you know they you know, became kind of a a social setting in a different way. It was a different kind of social setting. And uh, Ray Kroc came to the synagogue where uh, my grandfather was, and uh, the biggest, most successful McDonald's in Minnesota is at the University of Minnesota. What a surprise. And my grandfather had an option on that, and he didn't take it. He didn't take it. And I heard about it even when I was a young man. I mean, that reverberated through time as a huge mistake. Hey, you win some and you lose some. It's not easy to be an entrepreneur, to be self-governing. He was self-governing. He missed a shot. Okay. I certainly didn't hold it against him. Other people did. Because it was a gold mine. Just a personal anecdote. Ray Kroc did come into these communities, into these societies, and he was trying to raise money. And he kept with the message. He, per, he was persistent. He kept with the message. He refined a message, which is what we're doing here. And he built a monstrosity, right? Persistence. But when you build a monstrosity, quote unquote, and I call it a monstrosity for a reason, because it's McDonald's, right? We're not feeding the people. Well, I know there's nutritionists out there that don't, does, they just don't think it makes that much difference. I personally think it, you know, I think eating food made with love is preferable to industrial design. That's just me. Uh, try it out if you haven't. I've, I've always found that when food is made for me or I make my own food and I do it with love, it's more nourishing. But these people had a different idea. They had the industrial, the industrial kitchen in mind. Let's just play this little piece, the founder on winning. This is when things go wrong. I'm looking at a letterhead with the name McDonald's on it. You care to explain? It was confusing. People didn't even know it had anything to do with McDonald's. What's confusing is you calling yourself the McDonald's Corporation. People will think it's the whole company, not just the real estate arm, which we strongly suspect is what you hope. You put Dick's arches on your letterhead? This is not your company, Ray. Mac. Do you understand that? Mac, don't get upset. We came up with the speedy system, not you. Us. What have you ever come up with? Can you name one thing? You can't. And you never have, and you never will, because you are a leech, Ray. You are a professional leech. You know what I came up with, Mac? A concept. I came up with the concept of winning. Let me While talk you to two him. boys were content to sit back and be a couple of also rants. I want to take the future. I want to win. And you don't get there by being some aw shucks, nice guy, sap. There's no place in business for people like that. Business is war. It's dog eat dog, rat eat rat. If my competitor were drowning, I'd walk over and I'd put a hose right in his mouth. Can you say the same? Hmm. Well, that's, uh, I don't know if Ray, Ray Kroc actually said that, but uh, that screenwriter uh, certainly let Ray Kroc say it through Michael Keaton. And if that reflects the, the truth of Ray Kroc, well, hey, we got a raging Darwinist feeding us food. That's just great. A raging Darwinist. The only thing that matters is winning. And if his competitor was drowning, he'd stick a hose right down his throat. That's great. He's a murderer. Fantastic. Boy, I can't wait to have another 
trip over there. That helps wash down the, the hamburger. You know, I only say this because uh, we really need to think about the economy of our own food. All of us. We need to grow our own vegetables in our, even if it's in our windowsill. We need to support local farming. We need to be in a farm co-op where we're, we're buying directly from a farmer and supporting them and ensuring a good food supply for ourselves. This is called developing our own political economy. If it's fast, hey, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. That's too quick. We need to pay more attention to what ourselves when we eat, what we eat, how we eat it, the environment we eat it in. All those things matter. And, you know, we can all do it. We all have to do it. Wherever we're at, we got to do it. Okay. So that's the founder on winning. But it really brings up the message. When the message, you can have all these great slogans and, you know, McDonald's is family and, you know, it's the new church and what, whatever. He, he had all these different pitches. If the inside of it is not right, it will eventually fall. Just that simple. When the inside is not right, It'll fall, and that's a lot like our uh, Republican Party. We're rebranding something. Okay, rebranding this thing. Why? Well, we got to know the history of the party. For those of us that are new to the party, or you know, really, you know, are in the party because it more closely reflects their personal values, but they haven't really thought about being a Republican. I'm in that group, okay? I love the founding documents. There's things in the Republican Party that I philosophically really resonate with. You know, then you go look at the history of the party. Oh, a little bit of a gap here, okay? And we're carrying that forward with us, so let's talk about it for a minute or two. Uh, the, the history of this party, this Republican Party, and this Democrat Party, both of them are equally up to their necks in the race issue. Both of them. And the immigration issue. And, you know, at the, at the germ seed before this thing got organized, because it takes time, you know, a lot of chaos when there's a new land. The truly adventurous come first. They don't necessarily bring with them the shackles of the old system. They take the land, you know, like an invading force, and then here comes... Here comes the institutions, right? So when the country was opened, it was one thing. It, was, it, it wasn't formed the way it is now. The ideas were swirling around. And uh, there was a lot of different constituencies, but both parties, as they formed and developed and went through their different iterations, they both had in common really a very Darwinist sentiment towards race and immigration. They dealt with it very differently on the outside. On the inside, let's just, let's just focus on what is, not what one says. These are politicians, after all. Let's look at the outcomes, not the platitudes, okay? And that's across the board. 
that's uh, that's that's both parties working together. So you look at the obviously the Democrat Party. This is most assuredly, without any scholarly debate, the party of the South and of the enslavers. And the Democrat Party was the party that left the Union. So the Democrats are the ones that said, well, we're out. Okay, because we're keeping our Democrat ways. And what were the Democrat ways? Well, that would be uh, slavery and apartheid. Okay, that's, that's what they, they were part of the, the Crown's business model. And they were in the slavery wing of it, okay? And that was their business model, and it was deeply entrenched. And that was the root. And then you had this other group. Oh, and we, get, we, we like to think about the Republican Party like it's, you know, somehow was the anti-abolitionist party. And there was that kind of a really sentiment. There were people in there like that, that. But these are big parties, just like now. People have all kinds of, all kinds of perspectives. So we can't, particularly back then, where there was newspapers and there was a lot more variability, because people actually did their own thinking. I mean, they couldn't really turn on the television and get somebody's opinion, right? The brainwashing was a lot less, or, from the Marxist perspective, a lot more, because these people read the Bible. But that Republican Party really was preceded by other groups, the Whigs and the Know-Nothings. Now, it wasn't that long ago. Most of us have never heard of the Know-Nothings, I'm sure. But if you go back into this history about what is the roots of the Republican Party and how are we going to open it so people have a, a home, a place where they can feel safe and accepted, you've got to go back into the history of how this thing came to be and the decisions that were made around it. Uh, Tanner, can you play this piece? Romney on the know-nothings. This is a, a historical, in the, this is a genie in the bottle. Go ahead, put this on here. I yield 10 minutes to speak in support of this amendment. Oh, stop this for a second. It's a message in the bottle, but he's like a genie. This is Mitt Romney's dad. He was, uh, I want to frame this out. Uh, this is George Romney ad addressing the Republican National Convention in 1964. This was just before they uh, nominated Barry Goldwater to get uh, uh, get in the get into the, uh, the, the being in the presidential race with Johnson. And he, well, everything he says is interesting, but he actually is going to talk about Republican Party history. And please listen to it carefully because it's very instructive. Go ahead, Tanner. Thank you. To the governor of the great state of Michigan, the Honorable George Romney. Governor Romney is recognized for 10 minutes. Thank you very much. He looks a little bit like Mitt. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Congressman Laird, fellow delegates, and fellow Republicans. I'm here at this convention because I profoundly believe that present basic trends and perils are rushing us toward a national crisis. Can you stop it, please? You know, to my uh, friends who've been saying it's not the crisis that we're being told it is, well, this is 1964, and we're rushing to a crisis right then. So. 
Apparently, politicians like to keep us in the crisis mode. Can you please continue? And I believe to avoid or to survive that crisis, the Republican Party must promote the program and provide the leadership that will capture the interest, respect, and support of a majority of Americans. I think the future of this nation depends on that. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm not here to aid any candidate speaking at this time, and I am not here to detract from any candidate. And I appear to seek your open-minded consideration of a still stronger and more complete platform that will meet our needs as a party and as a nation. We have a good platform. I'm not here to criticize this platform. I'm here to improve it. I make this urgent plea for your open minds and hearts for the purpose of giving the candidates to be selected by this convention a better opportunity to win this fall. Can you stop it? He's asking for our open minds and our open hearts. You know, as if we were in the room. Okay, this is very interesting. He's asking for open minds and open hearts. Please continue. The strongest personality on earth cannot deal with the problems of this nation except upon the basis of correct principles. Stop, please. That's an appeal to religion, correct principles, first principles. And he's setting something up here. Please continue. Our party was founded at a time of grave national crisis. It was our mission at our birth under Lincoln to preserve this nation established by divine providence with a divine destiny. The nation and its destiny were imperiled not only by the irreconcilable conflict between slavery and freedom, but also by the extremism of that time. And the extremism and lily-white Protestantism destroyed... Oh, stop. Extremism and lily-white Protestantism He's about to say something about the history of the Republican Party that is really stunning. Please continue. The Whig Party and brought the Republican Party into being. Stop, please. It destroyed the Whig Party and brought the Republican Party into being. Please continue. Extremists of that day called themselves the sacred cult of the Star-Spangled Banner, officially. Stop, stop. They called themselves the sacred cult of the Star-Spangled Banner. That was a secret society. We're actually talking about a a root of the Republican Party at the 1964 political convention. It's not that long ago. This is how much the curtain's been drawn over our eyes about the roots of this country and the history of this country. Governor Romney's talking about a secret society. Please continue. 
Oh, stop. They were known as the Know Nothings, the Secret Society, and that became a political party. Please continue. Popularly as the Know Nothings, while their political leaders sought refuge in silence, while other political leaders did, Lincoln spoke out as forcefully against the Know Nothing extremists of his day as he did about slavery. He attacked both as a violation of the source, as the source of freedom and greatness. He attacked both slavery and know-nothing extremism as a violation of the principle of the Okay, body. stop it. Okay, here you've got that really pure Christian sentiment that says all men are created equal, that that's the founding document. It's George Romney. What he's saying is all men are created equal and that Lincoln opposed equally the racism of the South. Now, this is a kind of a retelling of a story, but it's a good story because, you know, the facts on the ground speak for themselves. He opposed the racism of the South, which was a democratic racism, pretty extreme, called slavery. And he also opposed the racism or the Darwinism of the northern roots of the Republican Party, which was the secret society and its political wing, the know-nothings. This is really something we need to focus on about our brand and about both brands, Democrat and Republican, and how we can get ourselves out of this mess we're in. Please continue this. Let's finish this off. Brotherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. And had Lincoln ignored the know-nothing extremists of his day, he would not have been president of the United States and saved the nation. In 1854, Lincoln said, quote, As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, quote, All men are created equal except... Stop it. Okay, this is whatever you want to say about Mitt Romney or wherever this guy was coming from. This is a gripping speech. And what he's saying is that there was these groups that perverted all men are created equal. And if they got their way, all men would be created equal except for black people, immigrants, and Catholics. And that is the root of both parties. And this is such a beautiful speech. And he's using Lincoln as a hero. And he's hearkening back to the founding documents. And this is the Republican Party that he was trying to save. He's trying to create a platform to keep the Republican Party from becoming pigeonholed as a racist or xenophobic, homophobic, and anti-Semitic organization. Please continue. Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, and these are still Lincoln's words, when it comes to this, I shall prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty to Russia, for example, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of democracy. Those are Lincoln's own words. Wow, Lincoln's incredible, right? Don't scam you with your democracy. People are either free or they aren't. 
I mean, there's some just some great history that we can all share together. And that speech is just fantastic. So it makes you wonder, who are the know-nothings and who are the Wicks? Because that's the brand we're carrying with us. And that's why we're having a problem, even though we, we got better ideas, we've just been branded because we were, and we are, quite an anti-immigrant and quite an anti-this and anti-that party. Darwinists everywhere. William Poole. Let's see William Poole. Can you play the Gangs of the New York clip? Let's, let's, let's meet William Poole at some of his best work. Is this it, priest? The Pope's new army? A few crusty and a handful of ragtags? I know, Bill. You swore this was a battle between warriors, not a bunch of Miss Nancys. So warriors is what I brought. The O'Connell Guard! The Plunk Uglies! The Sharp Tails! The Chichesters! The Forty Thieves! And my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land or the foreign hordes defiling it. With the ancient laws of combat, I accept the challenge of the so-called natives. You plague our people at every turn. But from this day out, you shall plague us no more. For let it be known that the hand that tries to strike us from this land shall be swiftly cut down. Then may the Christian Lord guide my hand! against your Roman popery. Prepare to receive the true Lord. That's good enough. Well, there it all is. There you have it, okay? There you have it, in a nutshell. Uh, we're carrying that with us. Democrats and Republicans both. Uh, you know, Democrats are uh, just carrying the the Democrat shackles the people to programs of dependency and unwellness. I mean, that, you know, that's what it is, okay? And the Republicans, oh, my gosh, the background of this party? That was uh, William Poole there. William Poole, great guy. Also known as Bill the Butcher, was the leader of the Washington Street Gang, which later became known as the Bowery Boys. He was a local leader of the know-nothing political movement in the mid-19th century New York City. And who were the know-nothings? Well, that's that, what, what Governor Romney was talking about. This is a real historical events. You know, the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner was a secret society that was formed in New York City, created in 1849 by Charles B. Allen, 
to protest the rise of Irish, Catholic, and German immigration into the United States. Irish, Catholics, and Germans. What do they all have in common? Catholic, Catholicism. These, these people were willing to go to war over this, and they did. To join the order, a man had to be 21 years old, a Protestant, and willing to obey the order's dictates without question. Members were called nativists, citizens opposed to immigration, especially immigration by Catholics. They saw Catholics as dangerous, illegal voters. Dangerous, illegal voters. We've heard this before, haven't we? Under the control of the Pope in Rome, members invariably responded to questions about the OSSB by claiming that they knew or know nothing. I know nothing. Sergeant Schultz, you know, Stalag 13 from the 60s. Look it up. It's pretty funny. I know nothing. <laughs> That's really funny. Anyhow, they became a party. They, you know, they had their secret society. They said, okay, we're going to take this downtown. And they became the know-nothings. And what were the know-nothings? It was a nativist political party. And it's the root, the Whigs and the know-nothings are the root of the Republican Party. And neither one of them were A-OK with uh, immigration or, you know, they were, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, slavery was in here. I mean, there was a lot of things dividing people. But both of these groups, the Whigs and the Know-Nothings, they had their own views on race and immigration that were, you know, pretty horrifying. The Whigs, they were a conservative political party that existed in the mid-19th century. Slightly, uh, they were alongside, you know, the Democrats were bigger. Um, there was four presidents that were Whigs. And the Whig-based support was entrepreneurs, professionals, planters, social reformers, devout Protestants, particularly evangelicals, and the emerging urban middle class. This is once again uh, anti-Catholic, and it had very little backing from the poor and the, you know farmers and unskilled workers. The you know the worker class they were already going off in the Democrat direction. So the party, this party, the Whigs had good things about it. it was hostile towards manifest destiny, and it disliked strong political power invested in the presidential office. There was, you know, there was things that became, you know, part of the modern Republican Party came out of this Whig Party. Uh, but the Whigs and the the Know Nothings were the two groups that smashed together, and uh, basically. Uh, to one degree or another, the Whigs had more abolitionists, but both of these parties really did not want slavery to expand. Uh, they wanted the, the Union to go on. They were Federalists, and they were seeking an accommodation. And the modern Republican Party was, was an extremist party that said, you know, by any means necessary, we're getting rid of this slavery. The know-nothings, you know, and the, the, they were more in the center. They're looking to cut a deal. Let's keep everything under control. Let's keep the immigrants out, keep the Catholics out, keep the slave thing under management. These people were fairly horrifying. But they cut a deal, and everybody ended up in the Republican Party. And those 
ideas have just come forward through time. So all the folks that you know are Catholics and in in in, you know, in the Jewish community, in the Black community, all the immigrant communities, they all know this about the Republican Party. The only people that don't know it is the Republicans. Yet I will tell you from personal experience, there's plenty of racism and anti-Semitism to go around in the Republican Party, in the modern Republican Party. So. Both parties need brand makeovers. We have to have policies that are are purely, solely, and exclusively dedicated to the well-being of the American people. All of the American people. Let you know what. Let's play this piece, Wallace. Uh, uh, Starting at four twelve, where it says Wallace supporters, the world they you know they you know the world they will leave us. Start at four twelve on that one. Now George Wallace, if you don't know who he is, was the governor of Alabama. George Wallace was a white supremacist and believed in the separation of the races, and he was really straight up about it. Okay, wasn't kidding around. And I've made the statement before that you know when. This is at the, he ran for president in 68 and he ended up running as an independent because he was rejecting the Democrat party because Lyndon Johnson had supported the civil rights movement and they had set, set up the great society and the Southern Democrats felt as if they had been, you know, betrayed by the Democrat party. They had a bigger vision. These people weren't interested in that vision. They had their own vision. And Walsh was their champion. And now we're going to listen to this, you know, Democrat. This is, these are Democrats who are supportive of Wallace. All these people ended up being Republicans. I mean, kind of poetically, not specifically. Please continue. Especially as native Alabamians particularly, we are proud of George Wallace. And we also think he's a very capable man. And he has done so much for our state. He has raised the educational level and uh, just... Overall, he's just, we think that he's um, the man for the job. Well, this is our world. We're the ones to inherit this world. And George Wallace, Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, Romney, the rest of them will pass on. They'll leave it to us. And so what they make will be what they leave to us and what kind of world they leave to us. And I believe George Wallace is the type of man that will leave to this country a world we can be proud of. Not a world that they'd like for you to believe where there's prejudice and bias for a man. I've never hated another man in my whole life, just pure hating because, and I don't even know him, because I've always tried to, my folks brought me up to try to be a Christian, and I believe that way. And that's another thing I believe that has been a, a breakdown in this country is of, of young people uh, trying to... Um, They've lost Christianity in their life. They, they, they have lost the meaning for God. And I believe God has a very definite place in everybody's you life. stop for a second. Did you notice how that bell rang just as he started talking about Christianity? You have to ask yourself, was that an accident or did they pay somebody 20 bucks to go up there and ring that bell at that moment? I don't know. Just the kind of stuff I have to because this, this kid's very eloquent. Go ahead. Let's continue with them political life. This country was founded by Christians. Well, Governor Wallace is a very uh, religious man, and uh, he holds that uh, some of his highest principles are, are, are governed by the law of God, and I think all men are governed by the law of God. That law comes first before any law. 
we're going to turn the schools back to the people of Georgia and let you determine the educational policies of your own child. Now, if the candidates don't say that, then as far as I'm concerned, there's not a dime's worth of difference in any one of them. So we've got to have not only the candidate, but he's going to have to run on the proper platform. And we're tired of generalities and platitudes. And if you're going to elect somebody who looks good on television, who sounds good, who makes a sweet sound in speech and has a fine voice, well, you could elect Walter Cronkite. Or you could elect Hunt okay, Lynn Brink. Can you stop, please? Okay, now he's an independent heading towards the Republican Party. Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley were the top television news anchors of their day. They lived in New York. Walter Cron Cronkite was on CBS. Huntley and Brinkley were on NBC. And you can see this kind of the media is the enemy of the people. This is 1968. Listen to what George Wallace has to say. Yeah, you could elect some of the national newscasters if you're going to elect people on how they sound on television. That's not going to suit us. And it, as it stands now, there's not a dime's worth of difference in the leadership of both national parties, and I don't believe there's going to be a dime's worth of difference in their platforms in 1968. And if there's Can you not, stop, please? Oh, this guy's complaining about the Uni Party in 1968. Not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. Please continue. Then I'm going to be in Georgia and I'm going to be throughout the country and give the people a chance to express themselves. Interesting, isn't it? George Wallace and uh, Donald Trump sound pretty familiar on this issue, don't they? Pretty similar. George Wallace was a horrifying racist. Horrifying. And uh, I have to say, if he was as faithful as he said he was, and he believed all men are created equal, why are we even having this whole conversation? Because his whole thing was about giving uh, disaffected Democrats in the South new leadership as regards separate but equal. Okay. So that's, uh, that's how we got to where we are, both parties, you know. You got the party of slavery. I mean, they're just straight up, they're just straight up gangsters, okay? Come on. Is there anything more gangster than owning slaves? That's like the ultimate gangster play. That's who the that's who the roots of the Democrat Party are. You can't get any more gangster than having slaves. That is the ultimate in being a gangster. Think about it. If I'm strong enough to make you my slave, that proves I'm strong enough to make you my slave. You know, that's pretty Darwinian, okay? These people are Darwinists of the highest order. So when people say that they're Christians and they have, you know, like the principle of Christianity, it's a different kind of Christianity. It's kind of a Calvinist Christianity. It's, it's not the kind of all men are created equal in the sight of God sentiment that was expressed in our Constitution. We've fallen far short of that. And we just need to rebrand. We need a fresh start on this stuff. Because it's kind of ridiculous now, right? This is a settled issue. Even this young man, give a great disclaimer, 1968. I never met, I never hated anybody that I didn't know personal. That's great. How about people that you know personal? Did you hate them? So we have a uni party. There he is. George Wallace. 
By the way, he was shot. They tried to kill him. I don't know who they was. It was another lone gunman. You tell me. Another lone gunman. He's talking against the uni party. He's talking against both parties. You know, we don't really include George, George Wallace in the pantheon of the great assassinations, which was, you know, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, and uh, Malcolm X. And he survived. But he was shot at the same time. And another leadership. And he was a big, he, this guy was a big voice, okay? This guy was in the news every day. This wasn't some guy out in a cornfield. This guy was making national news. And he was complaining about the unit party. He said, there's not a dime's worth of difference between these two parties. Well, what were they peddling? Democracy on the left and on the right military. Same idea. Democracy in the military, same idea. Environmentalism, yes, they were. That way by 68 was a big deal already. How do I know? I'm a living record. I was going to school at that time. I know what they were focused on. Environmentalism. Eh, healthcare. Same thing. Everybody has agreement. Let's not, let's not look at what people are saying. Let's look at what people are doing. $1.1 trillion for the military, $1.6 trillion for health care. I think there's broad consensus in the parties that we're spending on these issues. We, the people, are paying for it. Only thing these parties are disagreeing about is the race issue. Oh, there's lots of disagreement to go around there. Keeps people hating each other. Well, $2.7 trillion go out the back door through the count room. Remember the count room in Casino? So what do we need to do here in Minnesota? Because, you know, I want to affect my backyard. The first thing we're going to do is, I hope you're listening to this, and it's a 15-minute clip and you're a Minnesota political activist. Let's work together and create a digital community where we can talk to each other, okay? We can have our own Zoom calls. We can have our own meetings. We can get together in town halls. We can come to every Senate district in the state to support each other, okay? And let us start to distribute the material and build this community and start to let it be a center for our political activity here. It's not, this, this, this is not being provided by MinGOP. They'll probably get this and run out and try to do it, but they got to do it with some style. It takes some creativity to create content that people are interested in. So I say, go ahead, go ahead. You know, I'm doing this for the American people and for what I think is right, the right thing to do, the truth. I want to tell the truth as I know it. So I'm using this forum, and if you resonate with this truth, let's get more people resonating with it. Or let's get a community going where we can refine the message together. I just want to tell you, here's what we have to overcome. Brandy, I'm going to play for you something, the saint of republicanism, the modern saint, Ronald Reagan. Here's what we have to overcome in MinGOP. Play this piece here with our two uh, pre our presidents, Reagan and Nixon. On the heels of President Trump using disparaging imagery to describe African nations, new tapes have just been released by the National Archives that reveal similar language used by the late President Ronald Reagan. Oh, stop. So here's Trump 
using not good language to describe African nations. And here, this is the saint of the modern Republican movement, Ronald Reagan. They always talk about him in reverential tones. He's our brand, really, for a lot of these people. The people that are the silk stocking Republicans that want things to go on like they always were, globalism and uh, free trade and uh, it's all about the money. It's all about the, it's all about the, the Benjamins. You know, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. Let's listen to what this, this saint of the Republican Party had to say. So let me take you back to 1971, and it was Reagan, who was, by the way, the governor of California at the time, was on the phone with then-President Richard Nixon. And so during this conversation, Reagan referred to leaders of African nations as, quote, monkeys, and then President Nixon gets in his own dig. Here you go. And last night, I tell you to watch that thing on television, as I, as I did. Yeah. To see those, those monkeys from those African countries. Stop it, please. I want to read this. Here's Reagan speaking to Nixon. To see those, those monkeys from those African countries, damn them. They're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. Please continue. Damn them, they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. <laughs> Okay, that's good enough. You know, Nixon just laughed uproariously at that and then made his own comment. The art of politics, for those that really try to engage in it, is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're never off. Uh, Really, you don't even have any friends at a certain level. Because you're always, if you really give over to the political, you know, in the, in the perspective of you, you have something you believe in and you have the persistence or the endurance to work towards that. And in my case, that's human well-being and human freedom and human dignity for the American people. When you start to engage with the enormity of that task, like when I'm talking to you, every time I make a misstep or a wrong word, I know it. I don't sit here and go, oops, please excuse me. What's the point? I'm trying to learn. But I know that what I'm doing is, is, is a professional episode. It's something that is important that I do as, you know, do as good a job as I possibly can. So here's President Reagan, before he was a president, calling then-President Nixon, a governor and a president, the leaders of the Republican Party in the 1960s, which is not that long ago. I mean, all the people my age, they remember these people. They were there. And he's calling up the president and using words like monkeys. I mean, it's just so racist, it's mind-boggling. But what's really mind-boggling about it was he knew it was a professional episode. These guys weren't pals. They didn't like each other, as a matter of fact. There was some political reason they were talking. They weren't chumming around, and they talked like this to bond. This was a bonding moment for these guys. This is the image of the Republican Party. And let's remember the Democrat Party, not their image. See, it's great. These are just mirrors, mirrors of each other. The Democrat Party has got its image all worked out. 
because every time a Republican group, going back to the Whigs and the Know-Nothings, would reject an immigration group, Irish, you know, the, the, the Italians, the Jews, whatever the group was, these people fought it. And the Democrats would come in and they'd say, oh, come on in. That's what Tammany Hall was all about. You know, in New York, it was the anti-know-nothings. It was the establishment creating patronage, creating opportunities for all these immigrant groups and working to integrate them into the society where this other group, which is the roots of the Republican Party, would just want to reject them. Get out. In fact, in that movie, sliced up. I mean, that's some hatred, right? So the root of the party, going back to the beginning, but as recently as the, the lion of the party, the icon of the party, Ronald Reagan, that is, that is hanging on the Republican Party as a shame. And we, we are looking at the Democrat Party, and they have the right image. Their image is great. They accept every, every group, and they're working for the well-being of every group. They're advertising fantastic. Their policies suck because the Democrat shackles people to programs are de- that create dependency and unwellness. That's what it does. So image great, policies create dependency and unwellness. Republican Party is the opposite. Image sucks, but the policies would create well-being and interdependence, particularly once we sort that party out. Okay? Because now we're getting into the branding and what's going on in the Republican Party. When we're carrying with us this shame of immigrant rejection, going back all the way to the early 1800s, all the way through with secret societies and anti-Catholic and anti-all these groups, I mean, these groups know what they, you know, the Catholics are voting Democrat they're not Democrats. They're Catholics. They believe in God. There's no home for them in the party. So that just leaves them stuck in there where generation by generation, the Democrat destroys their faith. And, of course, we don't have to talk about it today. There's many reasons why they would lose their faith. But we don't, we're not creating a place for them because we have an anti-Catholic history with that elephant. The Jews, the same way, same way they came here, totally rejected by this establishment that's in the Republican Party. We played a gentleman's agreement. Maybe we'll play it again with Gregory Peck, which underscored that anti-Semitism that ran through that what Romney called Protestant, lily-white Protestantism. That's Governor Romney's words, a Republican. In 1964, 1964, it's not my words. I'm just, I'm, I'm showing us what people have been concerned about in the party for a very long time. 64, Romney was appealing for the party to open its heart and its mind and overcome this kind of know-nothing thing, this nativist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic. And actually, there's racist elements in this too, right? Of course there are. 
You know, in politics, if you got somebody else doing your bidding, you don't have to do too much. So they were, back to 64, they were trying to rebrand the party and make it in harmony with the soaring words of the founding documents, all men are created equal. And that was the root of the party. Romney is calling about the hero, Abraham Lincoln. He's, he's struggling to create the kind of party that welcomes that 70% of the people into a party of well-being and prosperity and spiritual and material imbalance. But Wallace came in. He was the leader. All those Southern Democrats came into the Republican Party. That was the gift of Nixon with the silent majority. He took Wallace's group, and he operationalized them. Then step-by-step, first the silent majority, then the moral majority, then the religious right. Oh, my goodness gracious. Look at the roots of these people. Now, it's 2023. The grandchildren of this are now voting age. They've been raised by their families, but they've also been raised by TikTok and Facebook, not Instagram. You know, they've been raised digitally. And they've been raised, many of them, most of them in public schools. And, you know, we're ready to move on this, move beyond this now. Maybe the old people aren't, the young people are. Tanner, would you say that your generation is ready to move beyond this racial stuff? Is there a lot of, are they hanging on to racism in your generation? They're struggling to get beyond this. Right, people have diversity. I mean, there's a whole set of new cultural values that older people don't get. But we're ready to move beyond this. We have to move beyond this. Why? Because we're being used. We're being used to hate. You know, this issue is, is, is now so the only area of discontent amongst the parties. As George Wallace was saying, and for me to quote George Wallace, wow, that's ridiculous. But he said something so interesting. There's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties because they agree on military spending. They agree on health care spending, and that's most of the budget. They agree on Social Security and programs of dependency. They agree. The parties agree. They agree. The only thing we're not agreeing about as the American people are issues of race and immigration, and we're killing each other over it. And gender. Equally important. Got to stop. Got to find a message that works for everybody. It's there. I think I know what it is. And I think we need to get there together. I keep saying we've got to find it for ourselves. Bobby Kennedy seems to be all over the top of it, running for president. As a Democrat, interesting, isn't it? This is going to transcend party very quickly. If we're going to survive as a Republican, or as a republic, as a free people, what do we need to do in Minnesota? 
that really, that's really the key question here. What do we need to do? We need to be an open mind and heart open party, number one. We have to have persistence. Because if, you know, you're closed-minded, I don't want you to persist. I want you to wither and die out, okay? I'm talking about the people that have open hearts and open minds to a functioning American culture that brings about well-being for all the people. Persistence. Endurance. We have to be enduring as a party. Can't give up. That's why I reject all the different, you know, strains in the party of give up. Give up. If you don't do this, give up. If you don't do this, we fail. We're not doing this. If we're not like Democrats, we have to give up. I mean, you know, everything is give up. I reject that message. Comes from all over. And people are giving up. I'm not going to give up. Because I believe in the founding documents of this country. And I believe in my ability to endure. And the ideas are need to be preserved. The ideas are are incomparable. So we're gonna we're gonna preserve and we're gonna defend ideas as a party. We're not really interested in people, because they all seem to have feet of clay. No, if a real leader emerges, we need real leaders in the party. Real leaders. Real leaders. And what's a real leader? Those that tell the truth. The ones that are telling a lie are not leading. They're scamming. And the first thing is we, the people, have got to figure out what the truth is. We've got to know the real situation, and then we've got to find those leaders that speak to it with eloquence, consistency, and integrity. We need to find those people. Our message can be great, but if we're hollow on the inside, we will fail. The first thing is to be consistent sincere, and seekers of truth with the goal of bringing about well-being. We need to do that in the party. We need to give up a lot of rules about how things are done because they generated failure. Let's remember our, our opponents, they don't care if they're liberals or Nazis. To them, it's all the same. They don't care if they're socialists or communists. To them, it's all the same as long as they operationalize humanism. And a lot of their street-level pushers don't even know what the boss is thinking. They're just doing their job because they're getting benefits. They're getting benefits there. What are we going to do in the Republican Party to create benefits for members? Are we going to see the people that are participating as members that we value what they think, we value what they say, we're going to give them a forum to talk, we're going to listen to them, because we have a very top-down party, and that party does not want to hear from the participants, the members of the party. It's no interest. They want to tell us what to do. And here's what they tell us to do. Go out and collect ballots and knock on doors and red dial and work really hard. Don't do politics that divides us. More that unites us than that divides us. Let's not worry about what divides us. Let's worry about what unites us and all come together and work really hard. To elect what? What am I working to get elected? 
are my candidates that I'm working for identifying as Republicans? Are they participating in the rebranding of the party with open hearts and open minds? Are they interested in the well-being of the people? Do they understand the issues? Are they going in a direction that's novel such that we want to live? Where are their allegiances and their alliances to the past or to the future? We are not supposed to ask these questions. Come on. We want to do politics. So I'm going to just say to the leadership, we're just going to do politics. You know, it's a free country. And we're going to do politics, and more and more of us are going to want to do politics because we want to revive this brand, and we want to have a product we can sell. And what I'm going to say to leadership, if you can't provide it for us, we have to provide it for ourselves. Now, if you can provide it for us, come on the, come on the channel and let's talk about it. <clears throat> I mean, I will love to learn if I'm missing something, and I will be the most respectful and you know non, non-threatening, just talk, because we want to learn one from another. But I'm not seeing any rebranding going on. And I'm hearing the leadership saying, let's just get along with each other. And we just don't get along with each other. Let, let's just be frank about it. So why don't we talk it through with a lot of eloquence and respect and see if we can reach a new consensus that rebrands the party and gives us new product to sell. Because this phenomenon, this phenomenon of a uni party that wraps itself in religion, you know, it's not just the United States. We saw it's also in Israel. This is a strategy. This is a strategy of a uni party agreement on $2.7 trillion of spending, obscuring what it's doing with a whole set of social issues such that we can't get down to the business model that's afflicting the people, and the people are afflicted. The people are afflicted by the taxation. The people are afflicted by the unwellness that the business model generates. As Noam Chomsky said, the best way to deal with terrorism is stop participating in it. $1.1 trillion on military, okay? That's very terroristic to a lot of people around the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm being very clear about what I'm advocating. I'm advocating we the people provide for the common defense, not for the terrorization of other peoples around the world. I want to go back to what it says in the founding documents. I want to provide for the common defense. I don't want to be so ambitious. I'm interested in the United States of America. These are the things we want to talk about in the party. We want to talk about well-being, and I'm, I want anybody to come on and talk with me that says they're on the other side of well-being. We need to look at it. We need to look at it in terms of our education system. Here in Minnesota, we need to get off of these traditional divisions, and the one thing that's going to help us more than anything else is open hearts and open minds because there are so many people in the state of Minnesota that are so uncomfortable with the way things are going. They would love to have an alternative. And here's another little scam that's going on. The very people with the close hearts and closed minds 
they erect Donald Trump as the problem. Donald Trump is not the problem. It's the Republican Party that's the problem. He's being called a racist and a, a um, xenophobe because he understands that that's part of the Republican Party and he does not ignore those people. And that just drives other people in the party who want that hidden. It just drives them crazy. They say he can't win because of how he talks. Please saying, yes, I can win. Because just like George Wallace, he believes that that's a winning political ideology. And it's associated with, of course, wrapping it in faith in God. Would you please play <clears throat> to end the day this piece with Pastor John Hagee delivering the benediction at the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem? About four minutes long. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for those stirring words. To now offer a closing benediction, I'd like to call upon Pastor John Hagee, founder and senior pastor of the Cornerstone Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Hagee. stoppages for a sec because we're going to go out with this we're going to end with this so you think about it i want to just set the stage israel is deeply integrated with the united states in terms of its military capabilities many times in its history it only survived because the united states made cover for it uh i'm talking about militarily uh our foreign policy establishment our neocon foreign policy establishment one of its cornerstones is the defense of Israel. Uh, our neocon establishment is going to praise, we're going to praise Israel here for being the only democ one of the, 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 the democracies of the Middle East. So here we have democracy, which is the left's key idea, but this is a military adventure over here. And this is the U.S. Embassy going into Jerusalem, which is a real powerful statement of hegemony. So here in the United States, we have the neocons that are wrapped in the religious, and the same thing's going on in Israel, which is the Likud party, which is in power, and they're wrapped in the religious. And here is the perfect intersection, which shows everything to you. And I want to say on the way out, I want to thank you for joining me today. I, I, I wish you the best. I wish you well-being. And I want you to contemplate, I, I really ask you to contemplate this, and we'll pick up here next time as we talk about rebranding and uh, you know de delivering a, a message to the American people that 70% of the people want to participate in. Let's just go out with this and uh, send this out, and we'll see you soon again. Thanks very much. Let's finish her up. Can we stand? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who calls the stars by name and measures space with a span of his hand, the God who is the king of the universe. We gather here today to thank you for the joy 
of living and seeing this glorious and historic day. We thank you for the state of Israel, the lone torch of freedom in the Middle East, who lives and prospers because of your everlasting love for the Jewish people. It was you, O oh Lord, who gathered the exiles from the nations and brought them home again. It was you who made statehood possible. It was you that gave a miraculous victory in 1967 when Jerusalem was reopened to worshipers of all faith. Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem is the heartbeat of Israel. Jerusalem is where Abraham placed his son on the altar of the Temple Mount and became the father of many nations. Jerusalem is where Jeremiah and Isaiah penned principles of righteousness that became the moral foundations of Western civilization. Jerusalem is where Messiah will come and establish a kingdom that will never end. We thank you, O Lord, for President Donald Trump's courage in acknowledging to the world a truth established 3,000 years ago that Jerusalem is and always shall be the eternal capital of the Jewish people. And because of that courage of our president, we gather here today to consecrate the ground upon which the United States Embassy will stand, reminding the dictators of the world that America and Israel are forever united. We thank you for our ambassador, David Friedman, and pray your anointing upon him as he opens the doors of the U.S. Embassy to receive the nations of the world. Let the word go forth from Jerusalem today that Israel lives. Shout it from the housetops that Israel lives. Let every Islamic terrorist hear this message, Israel lives. Let it be heard in the halls of the United Nations, Israel lives. Let it echo down the marble halls of the presidential palace in Iran. Israel lives. Let it be known to all men that Israel lives because he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. As King David prayed 3,000 years ago, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all its inhabitants. Let the name of the Lord be glorified today. For the defender of Israel today, tomorrow, and forever is here. Can we all shout hallelujah? hallelujah. Amen. Amen.